Welcome to Fable and the Verbivore. I'm Fable, Beth Stedman. And I'm the Verbivore, Laura Johnson. And this is a podcast for writers who read, readers who write, and, and everyone, everyone who, who loves, loves words. All right, well, we'll get started. Today we have Heather Kaliri with us. And it is such a joy to have you here, Heather. She just wrote a book on creativity that we're very excited to talk about. And Heather, like we've followed Heather for a while. She has fabulous posts, just um, breaking down some just awesome. She, ha- You just have good thoughts. <laughs> like, I feel like every time I read your post, I'm like, oh, that is just so thoughtful and well um, processed out. Yeah. So welcome. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much, guys. It's really a pleasure to be here. We always start out with having a conversation about um, basically kind of your story with something. And today we thought rather than with story, let's have a conversation about your story with creativity. Mm. Yeah, you know, it's, I mean, like everything, it's a bit of a bit mixed bag. I, um, my family is very creative, like in an expansive sense. Like my, my parents are both great cooks. My mom was a seamstress, an accomplished seamstress. My dad loves work, woodworking. Like he makes those model ships that are crazy, you know, like crazy detailed. Um, My sister is a working artist. My brother was always like intensely good at like taking things apart and putting them back together. So I am on some level, especially when it came to art or making like physical things, I felt like I was way behind my older brother and sister Mm -hmm. and was always aspiring to get better at stuff. Mm-hmm. At the same time, there was a lot of there was a lot of toxic dynamics in my family. I was sort of the golden child of my family and could do no wrong, whereas my brother and sister could do no right. And the main one of the main ways that I was compared to my brother and sister was I was like quote unquote talented and did mm-hmm. a ton of performing arts growing up. Like I was actually a working actor for most of my childhood and did commercials and was on stage. And my brother and sister did really well in school. And so my brother and sister did not do those things, even though they had their own gifts. And it was, Mm -hmm. it always felt like my gifts were being pitted against other people's Mm -hmm. lack of those gifts, even Mm -hmm. though that wasn't really true that they didn't have them, you know, they had different ones. And so I was very visible in my creative family and my brother and sister's gifts were sort of seen as not being worthwhile or not being Mm -hmm. important. Mm -hmm. And that always made me feel very guilty. And yet I also wanted, I aspired to be like them, but then that was confusing because it seemed like they weren't good because that was Mm -hmm. the story of our family. And Mm -hmm. so for me, creativity has often led me into comparison. It's often led me into shame. It's often left me with a lot of anxiety because if you are like lifted up as higher than you actually are that makes it's very precarious right like the truth is in my family like the story Mm -hmm. was that I was so supported and well loved but that wasn't always really true that was sort of like Mm -hmm. the surface level but if you're being put out as like on a pedestal that's not good either right that's not healthy so I started my life with both creativity was one of the big actually one of the healthy things in my family, just seeing people using their gifts and making mm-hmm. things and being interested in, in, in craft, that was really amazing. And yet mm-hmm. it was also like, it was a competition and someone was going to lose. And that really mm-hmm. felt um, unhealthy to me. It was really unhealthy. So I started mm-hmm. out with like a lot of 
ambivalence about creativity. And I think that's true for a lot of people. Like we talk about it, like it's the simple thing. And I do not think it's simple at all. Yeah. That's so true. We all have this very complex relationship, I think, with creativity. You're exactly right. Well, and I think that that it's so interesting to hear that background than knowing a little bit about your book and that you wrote this book about that you call ordinary creativity. Um, And I'm curious, like how that background fed into the book and, and what led you to the decision to write that? Gosh, how did it, how did it inform it? I think, I think that sense of competitiveness, I mean, also growing up in the performing arts, like someone always gets the solo and other people don't, right? Like that's just always the case. And it was always really confusing to me that sometimes success made me feel more vulnerable than being like in the chorus, you know, like when you get a solo and then you biff it in front of people, like it really hurts, right? Like it sometimes is more fun. Like I did a lot of community theater and oftentimes it's more fun to be in the chorus than it is to be the star, even though that's not really the narrative, like, right? Like it seems like it would be more fun to be the star. And I just, I think I've just been wrestling with that. I mean, too, like I I told you guys before we started, I'm doing this book launch and it's just so hard and it feels so fraught. I really love this project. And I just Mm -hmm. felt so confused at sort of the narrative around success and what Mm -hmm. that actually feels like in real life. And also having read a lot of creativity books, I always, like so many of them left with me with deep anxiety and shame, like Mm -hmm. even good ones that I think are well-written and like, I don't think that the authors are wrong, but like it would feel, make me feel so small. And they even talk about that. And then they, you know, like I think Julia Cameron has the, um, oh, the artist's way. And that Mm -hmm. one filled me with so much anxiety. And she talks about the anxiety and that made me more anxious. So I was just like, what is it about these creativity books that is like messing with my head? Like, is there, there's something wrong with me? Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to get into like that weirdness. And I don't feel like most creativity books get into that weirdness. Creativity is seen as something that's just sort of a good thing that we should have more of. And how do we do that? And I kind of think it's a little bit more tricky than that. Yeah, that's fascinating. It is such a vulnerable thing to put your voice out in the world and your book out in the world. And I'm so glad that you're that you're taking that step. Um, So first, just Yay. Thank you (laughs) for going through with it, even though I know book launch is vulnerable and hard and scary. And I'm, I'm curious, just what are some of those, like, what did you discover as you wrote this book and as you process through some of those things about creativity um, and success and those different narratives that we believe, like what came out of that process for you? Oh my gosh, guys, I discovered stuff that I was not expecting. Okay. So I, okay, so just to preface this, I, I've been working, I'm, I have like a book proposal that I'm going to try to get propos- pro- uh, traditionally published, mm-hmm. and it is about normalcy. So I looked into the history of normalcy, and just, you know, spoiler alert, normalcy is really developed, is really related to the development of eugenics. Just that mm-hmm. word normal, that mm-hmm. is, that is tied into the history of eugenics. So before starting Ordinary Creativity, I had done some research and some, and had some working knowledge of the history of eugenics. And so I was researching the history of creativity And I stumbled across the fact that this guy named Francis Galton was the first person to really formally study creativity in like a scientific way. Francis Galton was the inventor of the word eugenics. 
he is the father of eugenics. And I thought, this matters. Like this, it matters that the first people who really tried to understand human giftedness were eugenicists. Like those ideas, and like that's related to my feeling as a kid that some people were better than others because they were more gifted. This is not an accident, right? It's not unlike the fact that me as like a blonde, blue-eyed kid thought it's better to be blonde and blue-eyed. Like I knew that as a four-year-old, right? And that isn't an accident. Like it's not actually better to be blonde and blue-eyed, but everybody around you is pretty sure that it is. So you think there must be some reason, right? Like that's racist, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's not unlike the idea that people that have more quote unquote gifts that are more intelligent, that have a better sense of pitch, who have a, are easy, have an easier time playing sports, that they are worth more than other people. This is not... Mm -hmm. This is not an accident that we think this. This is built into our society. And it's that kind of thinking, it's not, it's it's buried underneath everything. And the yes. other thing that really pissed me off when I did this research was that people would mention Francis Galton because he was sort of a polymath. He he had his fingers in a lot of dis different disciplines and um, like innovated a ton of stuff. Like he's one of the first people to have systematized fingerprinting. Like what, how random is that? Yeah. People would mention Francis Galton and not mention the fact that he was the father of eugenics. Like mm -hmm. they would talk about how he was a genius and they would never mention the very real harm that his ideas did to tens and I mean, you know, you know, the Nazis, they they were about that. And also yeah. in America, like tens of thousands of people have been forcibly sterilized because of those those ideas. Like yeah. literally tens of thousands of people. And it's not in the past, those those kinds of forced sterilizations, they've happened in this century because of in like California prisons, in migrant camps, like these are not over and done ideas. And so it, what really pissed me off is these ideas about who is worth more. And because of their giftedness, they are everywhere. They're in our school system. And nobody wants to admit that they have roots in this very toxic history. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to talk about that. And I think we have to grapple with that history in order to understand why all of us feel so ill at ease about this stuff. Mm -hmm. It really matters. Yeah, absolutely. And that story, the narrative around genius that you talk about in your book, do you want to <laughs> talk about that kind of is connected with this where, you know, the genius, the talented, the those select few are the ones that kind of get the opportunity. Yeah, definitely. And the other crazy thing that I discovered is like, if you look at like creativity is a pretty new concept. The word was only invented in the late 1900s. Okay. It's new to English, all things considered. Mm -hmm. And if you look at like ancient understandings of art, ancient understandings of genius, like in the, the Greeks, the genius was like a household God responsible for procreation guys. Like these, mm -hmm. these words have like changed and shifted over time. I told somebody else the other day, like in, in Greek, in ancient Greek culture, they had the muses that were in charge of different kinds of creativity. Visual art and sculpture did not get their own muse. And it's mm -hmm. arguably because slaves made sculptures, slaves mm -hmm. painted houses. And so those people didn't count. So they weren't considered really creative. So these mm -hmm. ideas shift and change over time, but they're always 
accompanied by ideas of power and worth. And so like, it's just much more malleable and tricky than we think that it is. And, and it's worth really digging down into that, some of that history and being like, so much of this crap is made up. Like, what does this mean to yes. me? Like, what do I want it to be in my life? Because mm. other people invented it in really unkind ways. So we could do something different, right? Yeah. That's so fascinating. And I think that's one of the things I really appreciate you about you is that you do dig like why and you ask that why and what's behind this and in all of the things I've seen from you, like I see that. Um, and it's, it is important. It's really important. And we need to understand where things come from in order to make more informed decisions about where we're going to move forward with them in the future, or how we're going to yeah. let these things influence our own lives. Definitely. Yeah, I'm a little obsessive when I get onto an idea. So pros and cons. Special interest. I love right? research too. Yeah. So I'm right there with you. Do you want to talk about then how all of this knowledge has then influenced your own creativity now? I I mean, especially as you're writing and as you're approaching kind of your own creative projects. Yeah. This book was supposed to be a, a part of my bigger book proposal, right? Like it was like, what could I do to build platform that would support this other book proposal? And I kind of thought as an afterthought and I started working on it and I was like, wait, I desperately need this book. Like, I mean, like I said, I grew up doing a lot of performing arts and as I've been launching this book, I'm realizing like I have kind of a lot of trauma around around being upstage, upfront and public. Like there's just a lot of mixed feelings and, 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 and anxiety and deep woundedness there. And when I, like, I realized the other thing that I kind of uncovered in um, the history of creativity, you know, eugenics is really related to disability, like disdain and contempt for, for any kind of disability. And, you know, understanding my own autism, understanding um, just it, how trauma has affected me, I kind of am like, writing this book made me think, what is my writing career for? Who mm -hmm. is it for? And I even just this week, I was like, you know, there are these things that I could do to support my launch. And I was filled with like a deep terror about doing them. And mm -hmm. I, I kind of had to stop and say, you, you are more important than this book. Mm -hmm. I, my yeah. well-being yeah. is more important than this book. And if that means that fewer people read it, that's okay. I mean, like, honestly, most writers are not making their mm -hmm. income from writing books. Yeah. So, you know, I have the privilege to be able to do this without really having to worry about how much money I'm making from it. So it's like, okay, then what's the point, right? Mm -hmm. If it's not making me feel good in my day-to-day -day life, is it worth it? And I'm going to get, I think I'm going to get some, some counseling for that this, this summer. Cause I'm really realizing like, I, I want to understand how to make good decisions about that. But I think sometimes mm -hmm. the idea is like more success means more happiness really sure that's okay like honestly I get about as much pleasure from crocheting things as I do from like writing books like they're not they're, they're different and like yeah. the pleasure is different but like I'm okay with just sharing my crochet projects with my family and friends and that's like that doesn't feel weird so why do I put mm -hmm. so much more pressure on myself with writing like what is the point and and like not that I you know I've got friends who are like best-selling authors it's not that I think that that's worse I think that's amazing but like, why does that, why is that more important to, mm -hmm. to prioritize success and numbers and all that stuff 
when it doesn't make me joyful, you know, I, I, I'm really kind of like wrestling with that right now. So you're getting the first kind of this. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. So, <laughs> because I think that we all kind of face that, that challenge of like, where is the part of it that is joyful and sometimes losing sight of that. And it's so easy to lose the, sight of it. It is. On the podcast this year, we've leaned into choosing pleasure. And that when I read the part of your book that is starting with delight, like leaning into delight, that kind of really resonated because sometimes we forget. We forget about the thing that brings us joy, the things that brings us to life, the things that are delightful to us. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, and our culture is so focused on people that are publicly successful that it does not honor the very real contributions that people make who are never known beyond their their community. Like my mother-in-law mm. was an amazing textile artist. I mean, the woman, like she did some work. Um, my brother-in-law is also a, a really accomplished director and photographer and has worked in stop motion. And she mm. did some work for him on projects where other people who had like full on art degrees from like Cal Arts were like, how did she do that? Like she was literally uh, like in a good way. She was a genius and nobody knew her name. Like she was not publicly successful. Most of her artwork went inside her house and it blessed her family. And like, sometimes I feel sad that sometimes she was limited from her past experiences. I wish that she had had more support early on. Like she probably should have been an engineer quite honestly. Like she could have made amazing things, but you know, besides grieving the limits of being growing up in the 1950s as a woman, like besides yeah. that, her work mattered and nobody knows her name. Mm. And like, it kind of makes me pissed off to think that anybody would feel that she failed because that was true. Like, why is that important that everybody knows your name, you know, except if you're in Cheers. But like, <laughs> I just, just, I just, just think that we have this idea of like what the end goal should be and that if it's not in big lights on a marquee that somehow you failed and I just really want to question that I just don't think as wonderful as that can be and I've seen it be really important for close friends it really doesn't change your day-to-day life all that much right like sometimes it doesn't even pay the bills long term it might for a season and then you have to find a new project and that itself is really hard so I just big time success can be really wonderful but anonymity can be really beautiful too Mm. it's not either it's not it's not either or it can be both and you know yes and that's so good I keep thinking about um like maybe this doesn't relate at all, but I keep thinking about the story of Icarus and this idea of like not flying too high or too low. Um, and I think I, I tend to, I tend to be a person of extremes. And so I either am like, I have to succeed at the highest level possible and I'm running after it at full speed, or I just throw my hands up and I'm like, well, I'm never going to do that. So I'm just not going to do anything. And yeah. I think something that I'm trying to learn is that, that middle ground of like, what does it look like to not put so much value in su- success, to hold a different definition of success, one that's more related to my daily life and not just some award or something right. I'm not in control of, like getting an agent or something like that. But also that isn't um, diminishing the things that I want to do or isn't like shying away from being brave enough to do them. And I'm finding that hard. It's like that kind of 
balance, I guess, is, is a little tricky. Um, yeah. No, recently I've been thinking about like for right now, like I, I really, really worked hard for 10 years to be as professional as I could in my writing. Yeah. And I, I think that that's a good thing. Like, I think it's yeah. good to, to aim for our craft, to improve, to put, mm -hmm. to take our work seriously, you know, to learn the the industry, like all those things are really good. But lately I've been like, like I said, like my crochet is giving me about as much pleasure as my writing. And that's not a bad, like, that's not to diminish my writing. Like crochet is really yeah. awesome. <laughs> I think I could sit and do that, that stuff for hours, right? Oh, crochet is so fun. It's like oh, just so relaxing, repetitive totally. movement with your hand. It's like a fidget toy. Totally. You can make anything, like you can make little dolls, you can make a blanket. I mean, mm -hmm. what's not to like, right? And I was recently, I've been like, you know what? I want my writing to feel more fun, like a hobby. And I like, okay, you guys, again, obsessed with this. I looked up the etymology of the word hobby. It comes from yeah. a hobby horse, which is like, you know, the rocking horses. Yeah. And the idea was that it didn't go anywhere, that people would do these hobbies that didn't go anywhere, that didn't, that weren't real, that weren't important. And I'm like, why do we have such a punitive word? For yes. something that's supposed to be just about pleasure. Like, hmm. what do you mean hobby doesn't go anywhere? Like, that's, in, that's nonsense. Like, you could yeah. just, you could, you could, my hobby is crochet. I've made blankets for people. Like, blankets <gasps> for babies and scars for homeless people. Like, why are we saying that this has no point? Are you yeah. kidding me? Like, awesome. our ideas around creativity and what matters is so punitive and shaming. I just, it takes my breath away. It makes me mm. so angry. Yeah. And diminishing. Well, yeah. Especially for the work of women, like yes. that that decorative arts and, and the things that women make to beautify that their homes. Like yeah. if you don't like doing that as a woman, I say more power to you. Like go stark. I'm all for that. Keep it simple. But if you like yeah. that kind of stuff, the idea that that doesn't matter or that it's frippery, it just really makes me angry. Yeah. Well, and so often those hobbies are the things that feed us back up, you know, like those are the things that bring us joy that make life a little more pleasurable, a little more worth living. Um, and so that's not, not going anywhere. Like that is, it is going somewhere for you. It's feeding you. Um, totally. and that is just as important. But I love that idea of just making writing fun and pleasurable. Like, I think that's been something I've been thinking about a lot lately. And, um, I think I've, started doing a number of projects recently that were just for me and they were just fun and they're the projects that like anyone not anyone but a lot of the people I know I would never tell about because they're just mm -hmm. ridiculous and most of the people I know would not find value in them but they have brought me so much joy just to like have fun writing them they're yeah random things and ridiculous stories and quirky as anything um and if I ever published them it would only be another pen name but I, it's fun to have that freedom to just yeah. explore and play. And I, we lose sight of that. I think a lot as writers. Yeah, definitely. And th that idea, like I, I wrote a memoir when my first like full book that I finished, I wrote a memoir and I mean, maybe at some t time it would be published. I have no idea, but like memoir is hard to sell. Right. So, <laughs> but writing that, memoir was what got me into therapy it's what helped me start understanding the power dynamics in my family it helped me reconcile with my brother and sister it 
brought so much to life because it's funny until you really name things, you don't even understand them, right? Like you think you know what happened in your childhood until you start trying to write it down and you're like, hmm, <laughs> like so many things were healed in me because of writing that memoir. And I'm like, if it never got published, the year and a half that I wrote writing that would be so worth it still. Yeah. Like it really... It was for me and not even like for fun. Like it was not the, I mean, writing is always pretty fun, I think, but like, it wasn't like, Hey, you know, super fun side project. It was like, let's put my guts on the page. <laughs> so worthwhile. And I think half of my writing, like the special interest that I've had besides just a, being obsessive about like my craft and about memoir it has been what happened in my family? Like what, what is that? What did that mean? What, why, how could that have happened, you know, with so many things in my family? And that's what has pretty much been the theme of all my writing projects, which maybe is why some of them are hard to sell because it's like, so, right? Like, it's like, if you're just like, what happened in my family? Other people are like, I don't know. <laughs> that has been so freeing for me. And I kind of am like, at some point, I, I, I used to get frustrated with myself that I couldn't write more widely that I didn't that I never really I did an MFA in fiction but I always found it really hard to come up with my own stories and, and plot things and I'm like you know what it, maybe it's okay that I'm just so single-mindedly focused on this one topic mm. even if that means that I don't reach a wider audience like yes. again what does success mean like I'm I I experienced so much healing it's not even funny because of writing about that stuff and I, my family did not go hungry as a result. So I think that's a win. <laughs> yes. Well, and the value in memoir and those stories, I mean, even in uh, nonfiction in other areas is it, it is, it does help others as well who come to those stories and see it and kind of can connect with those intersections and those differences. And it does have value and, and possibly even more kind of deeper value than we even will ever be aware of. Yeah. Right. We've talked recently on the podcast about the power of naming things. And I, I think even your post that you've shared about figuring out that you're autistic and, and neurodiversity, like do that. They do the same kind of thing that sharing a memoir can do. Like you're sharing part of your story and people then can see that and relate to that in different ways. I know Laura and I have both found a lot to relate to in your post about that. Because um, it, it is just really powerful to have someone name something and to put that experience into words and then to to let other people recognize that and and know that word and know that experience and be able to say, yeah, me too. I get that. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Well, and I think like, you know, if there is a benefit to social media, it's that those kinds of stories are, you know, despite the algorithms a little bit yeah. more democratized, like I would have, you know, I, I, you know, I discovered I was autistic because of another writer, Danielle Mayfield, DL Mayfield, publishing her story and like encouraging people to take an online assessment. And I was like, hey, it'll be fun. And wait, what was my result? You know, yeah. like, <laughs> not expecting that I would be on the spectrum. And, yeah. you know, like that, that, again, like we think, I think our cultural idea is if it's not a New York Times bestseller, if more than, you know, if, if, if tens of thousands of people don't read it, then it doesn't matter. 
but it's like really like sharing your story can change one person's life. And I think sometimes like, you know, I come out of the church. Sometimes it's like, you just need to touch one heart. It's like, also, it feels good when something is successful. Let's, let's yes. name that. Like it can be a great. Well, also like, so many of the times, the pastors who are saying you just have to check one heart, I'm like tens of thousands of people in their audience and are firing people when they aren't bringing in more people. So. Let's name that too. So there's tension there. Like, I think it's okay to grieve when we don't get the success that we were hoping for, that when things don't land in an audience that, that we were hoping it would reach. Like that's, that's something that feels sad, but at the same time, it does not mean the work is not worthwhile or was not, did not teach us something in the making of it. Like it's, I don't think anything is wasted, even if there's um, even if there's grief and the things that, that don't become, you know, like I, I learned from friends who are infertile. It's like, you have to keep living. You have to, you know, you might not get the thing that you were hoping for. And that is a real loss. It is not something that should be minimized or yes. glossed over or moved past. But at the same time, like you got to deal with reality at some point and you got to figure out what your life looks like on the other side of that grief. And I think for most writers, that will look like not being a New York Times bestseller, right? And not reaching a super large audience. So what does that, how do we do the work? Or how do we at least just have fun after (laughs) after that? Like, because some people decide, I just don't want to spend my time doing that, this crap anymore. Because it's so you know, it can be really frustrating and hard. And I say, okay, great. Like go do something else. Go crochet more things. Like (laughs) that's my message for today. Everybody go crochet more things. (laughs) But that's such a great message that either, either one is fine. Like either one is okay if it's for you. And, and I do think that reminding us that there should be joy in in it. There should be some, at least. And if it gets to the point that all it's about is chasing after that thing, that New York Times bestseller, that whatever it is, I think sometimes we get so lost in that, that then when it comes, we can't even enjoy that. Yeah. (laughs) I think the other thing that's confusing for us as writers in particular is like, there are best practices, like, for marketing, right? Or for mm. how to write a good book proposal or how to choose what to write that actually can reach an audience. And all those things are important skills to develop. They don't work equally well for everybody. Like I've really come up short this time of promoting this book and thinking about this book and being like, especially after an autism diagnosis, being like, there are reasons that I've had found it so hard to follow those best practices. And some of those best practices just aren't really realistically in reach for me and, and making peace with that, you know, like it's, it's like not everybody is able to, to run a mile. And a lot of kids are judged on how quickly you run a mile, right? Like those presidential fitness things that we had to do in seventh grade or whatever. And it's like, you know what? There's more than one way to use your body. There's no more than one way to be in your body that's not related to those benchmarks. And, and some people are going to have to make peace. I think we just need to normalize the fact that that's going to look different ways for different people and success is going to look different for different people. And this idea that everybody should be able to do something a particular way, yeah. like that's more about the market, which is not really 
a very healthy place to begin with. (laughs) (laughs) So like fitting ourselves into like forcing ourselves to do stuff we hate in order to market our books. It's like some people will be able to do that. And I applaud that. Like there's a real skill involved in figuring out how to do that. But if you can't, it doesn't mean that you didn't try hard. It doesn't mean that you're dumb. It doesn't mean that your work is worth worthless. It's just, there might be real limitations for you in being able to sustain that. And the people that are hungriest and, you know, have the most bandwidth for that are the ones who are going to be able to do it. And that might not necessarily be about quality even, you know, like everybody, I know so many talented writers who have not published in big venues who were amazing. It's just that there's a little bit of luck there too. Yeah. I think something I've been realizing as I've been thinking about self-publishing and kind of starting to look into marketing too, is that there are lots of different, just like there's lots of different ways to write a book and lots of different processes for doing that. There are also lots of different ways to market. And we're told that we have to do it a certain way. We're told we have to do social media. We have to do whatever. And for some of us, that can be really overwhelming. Um, But there are other things too. Like I've been looking into ad stuff and it's like totally playing to my analytical side, like playing up with keywords and how to like... A B tests and stuff like that. And like that mm-hmm. is so much more in line with how I can think than mm-hmm. putting out multiple reels every day. You know, like yeah. I can barely manage one account, let alone like um others are are doing multiple posts a day. So I think you also have to kind of learn that what everyone's telling you you have to do isn't necessarily the only thing that you can do to try to reach the goals that you want to reach. And sometimes you right. have to kind of think about, okay, where am I? strengths and and how can I play to those as I do these things yeah yeah and I think that that's it can be so easy to compare ourselves to other people like I I run into that trap so much and I think again like I think the autism diagnosis has been helpful to me and to realize like there is a reason why things that work for similar writers that I respect and I admire their values just don't work for me. Like Mm -hmm. I'm not going to try my way into having a a different brain, (laughs) you know? And, and so I think there's also, I mean, I think that there's cycles too. Like, I don't know if you guys are um, familiar with the work of Richard Rohr, but he wrote a book called falling upwards and it's about um, sort of how you grow and develop partially over the course of your life. And he talks about like, there really being different stages of development. And when you're first starting out in something, there's a lot of like learning the rules and following the models that are there. And then as you get to the second half of life, you know enough about the rules and models to realize I need to do something different. I need to riff or I need to tweak or I need to abandon. And that that is a stage in development that is important, right? So there's, it's like, you know, like the old adage, like you've got to know the rules to break them. Like that's really important. But I think, I think at least for me, when I've lost my way writing, it's like, I'm fixated on, like, I think that ambition to really learn my craft was so important up to a point to learn what the, what the best practices were and to really lean into doing them excellently. Like that is a good impulse, but after a certain point, you have to, you know, it's like the hero's journey. You have to like, let go of the mentor's hand and go off on your own path. Like there's only so much that those models will help you 
after a certain point. And if you aren't kind to yourself and admit to yourself, like those, these things don't work for me in this way, then you'll never be brave enough to actually strike out and discover the path that work for you. Like, I am just ex- excited yes. for you that you love the ad words. Like I dabbled in that stuff for a while and it just made my brain hurt. <laughs> and it just goes to show like, there will be open doorways for each of us and they're going to yes. be radically different mm-hmm. and they're going to lead to different outcomes. But just the, the fact that we've looked for them and been brave enough to try different things because we were experimenting and following and comparing ourselves to people someone unhelpfully, <laughs> like sometimes that leads you to a doorway that will actually work for you. And that's important Absolutely. to honor. But like <laughs> being slavish and just following those best practices forever and ever can can put you into a pit. And I think that can be really confusing. Throughout this conversation, you've had so many great takeaways. But is there any final pieces of advice that you would say for writers or creatives who are approaching their projects or lessons that you've learned that you found really helpful? I think, I mean, when I started, the introduction to my book is like, basically it's like my most important piece of advice is to trust yourself, like Mm -hmm. in a radical way, when it seems completely counterintuitive, when it leads you in away from what everyone else is doing. And I don't mean that in a like, you're so great, you should just love yourself way. I mean, like if your gut is telling you something, if your stomach is in knots, if you yeah. don't want to, like late this week, I like haven't wanted to do any promotional work at all. Like before this today, instead of doing the things I was supposed to be doing, I'm like, I'm going to play a game of solitaire with like real cards <laughs> because that was what my body needed. And so like mm-hmm. to just trust yourself especially your physical self, you know, not your ideas of who you are in your brain, but like, what do I really want to do right now? Especially with creative work, if we can prioritize that and just really take, take ourselves seriously and be kind to our bodies, it makes such a difference to making this work joyful. Yeah. Something I've been realizing lately, I love that so much is just um, (laughs) when so often lately I've been finding myself reaching a point in, in writing where then I get stuck and I like stall out in a story. And every single time I have found lately that if I go back, like, like so at some point I, tr- I took a wrong turn that my gut is like not happy about. Mm-hmm. And it was very interesting to start to pay attention to that. Like something in me is telling me this story isn't working anymore. Um, And I could press on. And that's what I used to do, like press on, come up with an outline, figure out what the character can do next. And lately, instead of that, I've just been throwing things out. I've just been like, okay, I made a wrong turn at some point. I'm going to go back three chapters and ditch all of that and see if I can work forward from there. Or I'm going to start again at the very beginning and see if I can change the story completely. And when I've done that, everything just tends to flow so much more easily. Like, just listening to that that gut reaction to what's happening on the page and to my own feelings about it has been a really big um, kind of breakthrough for me, I think. We know a lot more than we think we know. Yeah, that's true. And we know it not just with our brains, because I couldn't tell you what was wrong with those stories or why I stalled out. Like, I have no idea. No, but no I, I think it is much for me. I think it's much more about like what our stomach knows yeah. and what our brain knows, at least for me, when I feel wrong about something, it's usually like I get a stomach ache. And yes. I think that's, that is the voice that so many of us neglect when we've got all the voices in our head telling us like what is excellent or 
savvy or strategic. Like I'm just not that those, not that that brain knowledge is useless, but if it's not combined with really honoring that hit in our stomach, we are going to hurt ourselves. For sure. Well, thank you, Heather, so much. This has been a delight and I'm so excited about your book and can't wait to see it out in the world. Um, everyone, if you want to find Heather, you can check the notes. We'll have links to her, all of her things, <laughs> social media and website and her book and all of that. So go check it out, go follow her. She's amazing. And thank you, Heather, for being here. Oh my gosh, guys, this has been such a great conversation. Thanks so much for having me. Yay. Thank and everybody you. listening, keep reading, keep writing and keep putting your work out into the world.